Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. It is the dog days of August and content is down, but we still have a lot of really interesting stuff to talk about this week. School is coming back into session in parts of the country and Sharon Vane is here to run down various efforts to restrict reading lists and close school libraries and other forms of censorship that have become all the rage these days in certain states. Very disturbing, but we cover it here on Book and Film Globe. We're also going to talk to frequent contributor Scott Gold about Twisted Metal, a new video game adaptation, a post-apocalyptic video game adaptation, now airing on Peacock. But first, we're going to welcome Chris Lambert to the podcast for the first time. He's a new Book and Film Globe contributor, and he wrote a piece for us about the disturbing rise of people taking photos of movies while they're in movies. Very bad public behavior, but a very good article and a very interesting thing to talk about. And Chris will be right back after this short musical interlude to talk to me about taking photos in movies. There's been a lot of talk lately about how badly people are behaving in movie theaters. Uh, There have been several articles written about this topic, and we wrote one ourselves. We published it in Book and Film Globe. Our first-time contributor, Chris Lambert, uh, my fellow Austin resident, uh, wrote about, specifically about the the trend of people uh, using cell phones in movies, not just to talk on cell phones, but to take photos of movies while they're in them. Uh, Chris is here with me today to talk about this. Hello. Thank you very much, and thank you for the, the opportunity to talk about this subject. It's it's pretty fascinating one. It's it's an important social issue. So I have noticed this, but I I mostly go to the movies at either the I go to the Alamo Draft House or I go to the IMAX at the Texas State History Museum or I go to the Austin Film Society. So where I go to the movies, generally these are the kinds of places where people know how to behave in movies. They're kind of like these, you know, movie museums or shrines. But you you go to um you go to chain theaters sometimes. And so you've seen this behavior firsthand. I, I've mostly yeah, avoided I it. I've been going to the draft house unconditionally for years and only recently have made a return to <laughs> going to uh regals sometimes or amc sometimes and it's such a can be such a stark difference in just the tone the attitude the behavior it's not like every draft house theater i've ever been to has been perfect you know you 200 times and you're gonna see somebody on their phone I remember I was um, during the uh, I, I went to the movies uh, during the height of COVID, unlike a lot of people, and I went to see that Tom Hanks Western News of the World, which a terrific film, by the way. Um, but uh, there was a woman, you know, there were maybe six people in the theater, and she was like literally like having a conversation on her phone during the movie. And I I, I stood up and I yelled at her, and she left. She just left. <laughs> she didn't even come back. She just left. I, I I was I was righteous in that case. But yeah, but it, it you know it's funny because I, I I've seen you on Twitter talking about going to the AMCs and the Regals and, you know, the benefit to going to those movies is, as you've said, you know, if there's an eight o'clock movie, you can roll in at eight twenty and still catch the whole movie. Whereas the Alamo really, you got to be there 20 minutes before the movie starts. You can watch. (laughs) Yeah. The pre-show is an event in and of itself that makes it worthwhile where when you're going to the, the Regal AMC, it's just so much of the same stuff over and over again. 
it's like commercials for um, Coke and yeah, for uh, and TNT 24 shows. minutes of it is so insane. Like the, the Draft yeah. House, at least, the movie starts typically 17 minutes after the, the time and you have the great pre-show, you have the great trailers, and then, you know, you're always getting... Comedy bit, the comedy bit telling telling you, and this is leading into our topic. Yeah, telling you, you know, to be quiet. Silence your phones. Don't talk, and you don't get that same warning. Wasn't it the the AMC president a few years ago was talking about even just letting people have their phones out in the middle of the theater, and that was going to be the new policy, yeah. and that got such quick and brutal backlash that they immediately stepped back from it, but here we are uh, a few years later and it just seems like it's becoming. Yeah. It's a problem. And it was specifically, it was a problem yeah. during Barbenheimer, right? Because you know, that weekend was such a cultural phenomenon that people wanted to chronicle themselves being part of it. And that makes sense. If you want to take pictures of your cute Barbie outfit or your Oppenheimer <laughs> hat before the movie, or even like sitting in your seat right. before the but movie during starts. The movie. During the movie. Well, they're taking screenshots of the movie, which yeah. is technically illegal. I, I had a, a guy of the row ahead of me take a photo of Margot Robbie uh, three times, two to three times, and I could just see him take his phone out, hold it in front of his chest very surreptitiously, and take the screenshot, kind of zoom in on her face, take another screenshot. And I was just blown away, especially having seen so many pictures online and so many people talking about it to then the next night go into the wild and see somebody doing the exact behavior. It's, it's appalling. And well, also, like, how could anything you're taking on the phone be better than the still you can just pull <laughs> off of the yeah. internet? You know? and, and they're the same images, basically, and they're probably the better image. They're better images, and they're more, they're more accurate images. And, you know, and beyond all that, it's like, it's not like you're seeing Margot Robbie in person or you're watching her on a panel you know, or, you know, she can't, you, you, you spy her walking down the street or something. It's literally a movie that everyone in the I, world is, is seeing. Is the psychology that's so fascinating to me? Because what is it about where we're at in our social dynamics to where somebody feels the compulsion to take that photo? Because as you're saying, you can find better ones online. You can have a memory of it. You don't, you don't need to have... Uh, a poorly taken photo of a movie theater screen. Well, I know it's just an extension, right? Like if you go to a sporting event or a m music show, a concert, you know, there's everyone's filming, everyone's taking photos, but at least, at least those, and, and you can get better versions of what you're taking um, on the internet or, it, or wherever afterwards. But at least those are things that are happening live that you're at. So you're trying to at least say, I was there. You know, whereas like taking a screenshot of a of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that just really had me circling back around, especially to seeing the people who are posting them then on social media and just having that moment of connection or. Moment of connection. Like I saw a movie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I got to I got to share this screen this bad screenshot from this movie you also saw this weekend. I feel like too, especially with some of the online communities, there's so much cachet put into iconography 
and really sharing, you know, screenshots of your favorites, whether you're in a music fandom or a celebrity fandom or even, uh, you know, the DC fandom, all these people, because social media is such a visual medium, are constantly sharing screenshots, GIFs, photos, all these things. I wonder if there's something to it about this one's mine. I took this one. I'm going to share it. Right. Of course. Of course. The, the psychology makes sense. The problem is you're in a movie theater with, you know, dozens or hundreds of other people, <laughs> you know, and it's rude. Yes. <laughs> that's, yes. That's what it comes down to is it's just rude and intrusive and self-absorbed uh, in a way that like just makes makes no sense. Yeah, it gets to such a disconnect between somebody being cons- their concern for what they're able to do with the photo versus the concern of the people around them and that disconnect of I don't necessarily care if this bothers the people around me. I'm either not thinking about them at all or I'm confident that they're going to get over it and they won't mind or just some other semi-arrogance, very arrogant thoughts. I, you know, I'm um I'm a uh, I don't want to say I'm a Nazi because I'm, I'm Jewish, so I don't like to call myself Nazi. But I'm a I'm a hard cop when it comes to people misbehaving in movie theaters. Like I don't like it when people talk. I don't like it when people when kids are wiggling around and when when people bring kids to a movie that they shouldn't be bringing kids to. I I have, I have a lot of um a lot of rules in my mind. I guess <laughs> yeah, which makes which make me um maybe not always the most fun person to go to the movies with as, as my wife and, and friends can attest to, but it's, at the same time, you know, there is something to the fact that you go to a movie and, you know, to me, it's the equivalent of going to uh, it's a semi, semi religious, maybe more fun than a religious experience, but it has that, you know, you should, you should be somewhat reverent about the experience of going to a movie, even if the movie is stupid. Yeah. I like the, the theater, we won't be the first people to say the theater can feel like a church, like part of that ritual going in, like being part of the the traditions and the rituals of it all and feeling that there's like a sense of respect and expected behavior that everybody's kind of agreeing to when you go in there. And you said in your piece, and I, I, I sort of agree with that, you know, that since the quote unquote, since the pandemic, I mean, when, whatever the, the boundaries of those years are, um, people have lost their ability to behave in public. But I do think that this problem was sort of predated COVID as well. Like there was, there was already like a lot of, you know, bad behavior in movie theaters uh, before 2020. Yeah. I mean, I especially, (laughs) I was born in 87 and I can feel like just from watching movies that take place in the eighties and seventies that have scenes in movie theaters, it seems like it might've been a lot more casual in terms of how (laughs) it was raucous. I mean, that's the thing too. It's like, I mean, it was much more casual. It was not, it was not as contentious. Like people talking in movies was the norm. Um, yeah, you know, it just and also it was just it was less expensive. You know, it was just like the whole. It didn't mean as much. It was just more of a of a fun party thing. And also, like when I was going to the movies in the seventies and eighties, I was a kid. I wasn't a grumpy old man like I am now. So, like you know, to me, it was fun to go and shoot the shit with my friends while I was watching some Red Dawn or whatever. Yeah, I remember during the first when we saw the Saw movie in theaters, the first one when it came out, just like calling out to the screen like run run and people laughing and it, it now i look back on that and i'm just like oh my god well also like it, it's somewhat cultural like i i went to the movies some when i lived in philadelphia and um you know that went to a lot of theaters in mostly black neighborhoods and you'd try telling someone to shush 
in those theaters. I mean, everyone is talking and yelling at the screen. It's so this, in some ways, like my crankiness is like cultural and it has to do with my age, but I do think that there is something, you know, egregiously stupid about taking a screenshot (laughs) of a movie while you're watching it. It's like a old problem presented in a modern way. So bad behaviors persisted in movie theaters for since the inception of the theater, but we're at a point now where it's taken on the form of kind of the Gen Z predominance and social media predominance, and it's a whole different beast. I'm going to blame millennials. I know you're a millennial. I just like to I like to blame millennials for everything. I think Gen, Gen Z still Gen Z still can be can relearn these behaviors. <laughs> Uh, you know, but I, I blame millennials for everything. I don't know if uh, we're going to be able to stop this, but I, there has been, I've been somewhat uh, heartened by the outcry against this practice. So maybe, maybe we can, we can, if we keep fighting, we can win. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that might be the case that the people that love movies enough are going to be speaking up about it. And it's just going to be something where we saw this little initial influx and then it gets stamped out and people realize, yeah, this isn't the thing. And maybe the reward online for sharing these photos isn't what people had hoped, which yeah. also goes a long way to it not being a thing. Let's hope. Let's hope they're let's hope they get it's it's the op it's like getting ratioed on what you <laughs> let's hope yeah. it's like that. I'm gonna devote the rest of my life to fighting this battle and I, I hope you join me and I hope uh, all the listeners join me and readers of Book and Film Glow because we, we're not gonna stand for this. This will not stand. Not in our watch. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Chris. Chris Lambert, uh, new book and film Globe contributor. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. See you. School is back in session in many parts of the country, and the culture wars that have been raging continually, seemingly for my entire life, are, are back as well. There are many, many controversies involving uh, reading lists and libraries, and Sharon Vane, as always, is covering this for us. Hello, Sharon. I would say good to be here, but it's always uh, or often for uh, some distressing news, and that's certainly the case this year, uh, as we see uh, just in order to even try and get our hands around all of the things that are happening across the country, we had to pick and choose for this roundup. Yeah, you had to do a roundup piece for us. Yeah, I want, it's not like it's the only thing you write about for us. You do write book reviews and other things as well. I would like to some point talk to you just about some, you know, random uh, beach read that you've chosen to highlight. But uh, this stuff is important. Uh, So here we go again. Uh, What is... Yeah, it seems like Florida and Texas are the the states you focus on the most often. So what is is news uh, in in the realm of uh, restricting access to ideas and books? Sure. Well, um, in in both states, um, schools are either already in session or are about to go back in session. So a lot of these new state laws that have taken effect are really uh, wreaking havoc in the classroom There are a lot of uh, teachers and school districts and educators. They want to make sure they're complying with these new laws. So in a lot of cases, they're confused about what they can offer and uh, maybe overcorrecting and just saying, okay, we're not going to do that. Um, One big example in Florida is the whole discussion over whether uh, the state can offer AP psychology. Um, There's a segment of that class, which is a college board class for college credit. 
that includes discussion of um, sexual health and gender identity. And that runs afoul of a new state law in Florida that really, really restricts when you can talk about those subjects, if at all. So a lot of schools sent messages to their parents and said, hey, we can't offer AP psychology this year. We're going to offer this other thing, but not, you know, not as high quality as College Board, understandably. Uh, defenders of intellectual freedom uh, got concerned and started raising profiles. And so now the Florida Department of Education has said, oh, maybe you can. Nobody knows what to do. Some districts are teaching it. Some districts are not. Meanwhile, in a whole nother situation, there's one district that used to assign a full Shakespeare play every semester for its high schoolers they're now going to be offering just excerpts of Shakespeare because they also don't want to run afoul of this new state law. How in the world is, I mean, yes, I know, understand that there's now cross-dressing in Shakespeare, whatever, but how in the world uh, is, is Shakespeare uh, problematic uh, under this, uh, these new laws? Well, I think there's concern, again, because there hasn't really been clear guidelines coming down from the state of Florida about this is what we mean when we say sexual contact. This is not what we mean. Um, there's concern that, you know, there's some ribald passages in a lot of Shakespeare. and It does involve sex, yes. I, I think we've all been aware of that our entire lives. Right. Um, and But what used to be okay may not now be okay. And these teachers don't want to suffer fines or maybe be the poster child for, okay, we're going to enforce this new law in your district. And so a lot of districts are saying, let's play it safe. Let's just make sure anything we put out there doesn't have anything that could be misinterpreted. But as you point out, on its face, I think parents everywhere and certainly, um, you know, as we look at the situation, it, it's clear you say, should we be restricting access to, to Shakespeare? No. Because because it contains sexual content. I mean, it, it, it's it's absurd. So I want to talk about um, what's going on in, in Texas and specifically in Houston. Uh, there's some I, I don't necessarily want to delve into in great detail about how the state has taken over Houston Unified School District for for, re, for there's many reasons for that. But it, this is that takeover is leading to the shutdown of some libraries, which is bizarre. Yeah, so part of that effort, which, you know, trying to sort of redirect some schools into becoming higher performing, um, has part of the plan is to close down uh, some libraries and reassign the librarians and media specialists so that that space can be used for a Zoom room, essentially, so that students who are having behavioral challenges can go there and watch their classes instead of disrupting the class. And this has caused a huge um, outcry in Houston. Understandably, you know, the librarians are upset, parents are upset. Um, the Houston mayor even spoke up at a city council meeting because these schools that are being targeted are predominantly in communities of color. So like some schools are going to have libraries and others aren't. A big surprise that they're targeting uh, communities of color there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, of course, there's only one room in the school where you could do have a Zoom room, and that would be the library. Yeah, and it's interesting. One of the more recent uh, stories that's been done about this, um, uh, Houston newspaper, I think it's Houston Chronicle, did a deep dive into once a school gets a media specialist, 
the checking out of books increases exponentially. You know, the whole focus on this entire effort is about we're making sure kids are academically ready. So wouldn't you think that you would not want to cut off access to uh, books and reading at a time when you're trying to increase students' literacy? Generally, uh, closing a library for any uh, reason uh, is is bad. I you know unless um, you know maybe if there's toxic mold in, in the room or something, I, I'd be down with at least a temporary closure. But other than that, I don't really see it. Um, so so you know well, this has been a, a topic. We, we have these discussions every uh, you know couple two or three months or so. And you know initially we were we sort of talking about book bans and that kind of thing. But it's gone beyond that now. I mean I feel like this is we're, we're reaching this a sort of a level of absurdity that. We, even you and I couldn't have imagined a couple of years ago when we, we first started covering this stuff. Yeah, I mean, we see this is far beyond. We're still seeing the books being challenged and the books being targeted for all kinds of reasons. But now we're seeing uh, lessons. Now we're seeing public libraries increasingly being affected. Um, what some libraries have chosen to do to respond to some of these complaints is change their library card systems for patrons who are under 18, I think most libraries used to say, okay, if you're 16, you can come in without parental um, oversight and get yourself a library card and avail yourself of all those services. Well, now some states, again, often in response to new state laws, are changing their systems. So you've got to be 18 to, uh, you, know, you have to be 18 before you can get your card without a parent. Um, this isn't buying White Claw at the liquor store, you know. This is like, this is getting books out of the library. I mean, I, I was getting books out of the library by myself when I was 10. Same, same. I mean, that's the thing. I remember going to the library and being able to pick out truly whatever I wanted and check it out. Um, now they're creating, you know, these elaborate stepped systems. You know, in Louisiana, it's, you know, you if you're at sort of, you know, threat level red you know, can't check anything out of young adults. You can't check anything out of adults until you're 18. You know, other things, you know, your parents have to consent. Um, you know, if we throw back to Florida and the school libraries, you know, they used to have an opt-out policy. You know, if you really, really were concerned, you could say, all right, I don't want my kid to have, you know, check out any book until I check it out and make sure it's okay. Well, they switched the system this year to now everybody's got to opt in. So now everyone, all the parents, in addition to all those other things you got to sign, you have to remember to say, yes, I want my child to have access to the books in the library. So it's all restricting access. It's keeping kids even, you know, we're not talking about eight-year-olds. We're talking about 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds who are going to be out in the world and saying you can't check out a young adult book. It seems a little overzealous. Right. All right. Now, I'm gonna, I wouldn't say I'm going to play devil's advocate here because you know that you and I are more or less uh, entirely aligned on these issues. But, you know, I, I, I write for some semi-conservative publications sometimes, and I see articles in them uh, where they say, well, this isn't actually censorship. This isn't book banning. These are people who are trying to, um, you know, set standards or trying to uh, let people know what's actually um, in these books. And uh, they're, you know, allowing people to make more informed choices. I don't, you know, I think the argument's a little disingenuous. I was wondering if I could get your take on it for posterity. Sure. Well, I think it is very popular um, amongst the book banners to say that they are not censoring or they are not book banning. This is just 
parental rights to make sure that their children and children in general don't have access to things that will harm them. But the simple truth is that they can certainly control what their own child reads, but they also want to take away access for all the other children out there. And they like to cherry pick passages. I think it's often very popular to pull out the most, you know, salacious or explicit piece of a graphic novel or something that's been challenged, you know, for that's designed for a young adult audience and say, look at what your elementary schoolers have access to, which is untrue, disingenuous. It's just stoking fear everywhere. And the simple truth is no one is giving books like genderqueer to six-year-olds. If I'm in high school, genderqueer might not be right for me, but it might be something that reflects my reality or gives me a window into another world. And there's librarians in place who are highly trained, in many cases higher, more highly trained than classroom teachers, to make sure books are age appropriate and kids are getting the sorts of books that are right for them. Parents always have the right to see what their kids are reading and they can talk to them about it at home. We don't need to establish these you know, overzealous uh, boundaries and we see what the end result is. We've got confusion about what's okay to teach. It's spreading. We've got authors not being, we've written about soft censorship where authors aren't being invited to speak anymore, being told what they can talk about. And the people who are losing are the kids. They don't get to learn what's really happened out there. They don't get to read the books that they want to. They don't get to see their lives reflected on the page. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's uh, end this on a more cheery note. Uh, we we are in the sort of the back end of summer here. You have written about some some fun books for us um, beyond all these censorship issues. Why don't you uh, give give our listeners uh, something fun to read at the beach as they as they head out for the last few weekends? Absolutely. Um, well, one of my uh, books that I recently reviewed for the site is May Cobb's um, A Likeable Woman. And uh, May is a Texas writer. She sets her books in Texas. And they are twisty. They are fun. They are thrillers. People are getting together. Women are getting together and drinking wine. They are saying, you know, sort of untoward things and getting themselves into scrapes. Um, what I love about her books is that they're just as readable as you'll get, but there's heft there. There's um, some themes, you know, worth thinking about. And in this latest one, um, she really digs into expectations of, of women. There's a main character who's going back to her hometown in East Texas, trying to find out what really happened to her mom who died tragically. And there's a lot of discussion around, um, you know, what was acceptable for someone her mother's age to do as far as exploring her own interests and how she had to appear to outside society. It's a fun read. It's a thought-provoking read. Um, it's a great one to pick up. All right. Well, May Cobb is someone who we both know through our uh, circles in Austin, Texas, and I agree with you that she is an excellent writer, uh, wine mom, Texas noir, uh, for lack of a better genre. Uh, and we recommend her. And she hasn't been censored. Uh, anywhere in particular yet, so uh, you can you can get May Cobb's uh, books anywhere uh, where fine books are sold or or rented to you for free by public institutions. Sharon Vane, thank you so much for stopping in uh, at the beginning of another censorship season, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you. So if I'm here, then the exit is. Oh, they have a Footlocker. Oh, son of a. Uh.
welcoming new San Francisco. I want to hire you. Pick up a package, bring it back. I can make your every wish come true. So, John, what do you wish for? Toilet paper. Two-ply. I think I can do better. Three-ply? All right, Evelyn. Let's deliver this package. It's rude not to introduce yourself before pulling a gun on someone. Oh, it's rude. If you put the gun down, I'll drop you off as close as I can to where you're going. She's quiet. She don't talk. Motherfucker, eat shit. Much. You have no idea what's out east. Even the people trying to bring the law back are dangerous. This is our land. These are our roads. And you're gonna have to go through Vegas. We both know who rules Vegas, John. Hi, everybody. Woo! I've never seen anyone cut off a human head and catch it as good as that. This is gonna be fun. Peekaboo. This never happened to me before. Oh my god, it's DMV. What's down the red line? No, please! Cool. Screams. The dog days of content are here, but there are still some good things coming out on streaming TV, uh, maybe for the last time, now that the uh, writers and actors strike is, it seems like they're going to go on forever. But there are still some shows that are appearing, and one of them uh, is called Twisted Metal, and it is currently streaming on Peacock. It's an adaptation of a 90s uh, post-apocalyptic video game. Scott Gold watched Twisted Metal and played Twisted Metal back in the day, and he reviewed it for us. Hello, Scott. Hey, Neil. Great to be back on the podcast. Always good to have you. And, you know, I um, I did not play Twisted Metal uh, back in the 90s. I, I don't even think I played video games at all. I was too busy being uh, like a cool indie rock dude back then. Uh, but I, I did watch the first episode of Twisted Metal on Peacock, and I, you know, I, I agreed with your review. I found it extremely unpretentious and, you know, fun. Absolutely. You know, it's uh, when the mercury spikes and our brains are boiling inside of our skulls, it makes it very difficult or uh, you don't want to really concentrate really hard on anything. <laughs> you know, it's difficult enough just trying to keep yourself cool without like, you know, mulling over the, the weighty depths of some intellectual show. But fortunately, Twisted Metal is not that. It is just high octane, gory, just frivolous, Fun. And I think for, you know, this part of the summer, for this part of the year, when you don't want to take anything too seriously, you don't want to think too hard, but you, you know, you don't want to be played down to, it really uh, walks that tightrope of, you know, somewhere between, you know, treating you like an absolute toddler and indulging in your adult sensibilities, whether it's, you know, gore, violence, romance, whatever it is, but it, uh, Twisted Metal really strikes those notes and it does it, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. And I think it does it really well. And it turns out to be a pretty fun show. It's not anything that's going to kind of live rent free in the back of your head. Like, you know, that you're going to be talking about on your deathbed in 50 years or whatever it is. But uh, but for the time being, you know, as pop culture, popcorn media, it was great. Well, here's the thing about Twisted Metal, right? Like, we've been exposed to a lot of very self-serious takes on the end of the world in recent years. We had The Road, we had Station Eleven, there's The Last of Us, uh, Walking Dead to some extent. And Twisted Metal uh, is an apocalypse show, but it, it you know, it, it's... 
not quite as it's not nearly as dark as any of those things um and you know there's no plague I, it, there's some sort of vague like computer glitch that causes the as as uh the narrator says the world to go to shit and it kind of plays out from there but it's it's not as depressing as some of these other types of shows right and i think that's where they really shine and where it stands out because i think a lot of us are getting that uh, apocalypse narrative fatigue because there are only so to- so many times you could put yourself through the ringer of like watching people struggle through this you know end times period when everything sucks and everything is dirty and like just getting toilet paper is good like it's just you know there, are, there there's only so much you can handle emotionally i feel with this particular kind of narrative so i think the smart thing is what the the writers and showrunners on twisted metal did is said okay we're gonna do this post-apocalypse thing we're gonna do the mad max thing and have the cars and the guns and you know people kind of battling for resources but we're going to have fun with it and we're going to make it funny and we're going to tell lame jokes and kind of, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge at ourselves and at our viewers. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to lighten it up. And at the same time, we're going to still try and make something that is worth paying attention to and something that brings you back episode after episode, because if it was too frivolous and if it was too, too dumb, then we turn it off after three episodes, but they do manage to cobble together a relatively coherent narrative that you know brings us all the way through the conclusion of the series, which I think was great. Yeah, I mean there are stakes involved. I, I have not finished it yet, so I don't want to know how it turns out. But Anthony Mackie plays uh, a milkman, as they as they call him. He's sort of a a courier who uh, drives his car uh, from city to walled city to walled city, delivering things to uh, p- people who have managed to uh, hold themselves away from the horrors of the apocalypse. And he. Um, Sort of becomes involved with a, a bandit who out in the wilderness, played by Stephanie Beatrice from Brooklyn Nine Nine, and I, you know they're both extremely um, accomplished and appealing performers, and they had good chemistry together. Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, it was a you know I wasn't expecting to for Twisted Metal of all things because if you ever played the games, like I never even got to the games where they actually had the narratives and you really meet the characters and all that sort of stuff. Like I knew that this, you know, homicidal circus clown was involved somehow, but mostly it's just tricking out your car and then riding around and shooting other cars and stuff. I didn't get too in deep in the games, but, uh, but I was really not expecting for an adaptation of those games, which there have been a lot of, there've been like 10 of those games on various platforms. I was not expecting it to have such a, you know, relatively squishy, soft center inside all of this hard apocalypse, you know, juvenile humor, kind of violent action show. But let's talk about the homicidal circus clown. Oh, Um, we have to talk about Sweet Tooth. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, Sweet Tooth is, uh, basically he's the mascot uh, the most recognizable mascot of the entire series uh, or the franchise, really. And, you know, he's this, you know, kind of very large, hulking, girthy football player size dude with a clown mask and, a, you know, his head is on fire. And I was like, you know, how are they going to do this in the series? Are they going to make that work? And I won't spoil anything, but they do bring that element back in in a very fun way uh, near the end of the show. But, uh, but the way the series kind of kind of brought his character in was to make him I was just going to assume that he was going to be the antagonist, you know, he was going to be the big bad, but he turns into kind of something of an anti-hero who unexpectedly 
helps Anthony Mackie's character, John Doe, on his way a little bit after, you know, they have their first very violent encounter and they wind up bonding over Cisco's thong song, which uh, which is a brilliant scene and I think was great. Uh, the most interesting thing about uh, Sweet Tooth is that he's played by two different actors. So in physical form on the set, uh, it was the body of pro wrestler Samoa Joe, uh, but he's wearing a mask, so you don't really get to see his lips. So they did the voice of the famous Will Arnett, who has one of the most recognizable gravelly bar- baritone voices in media today, Lego Batman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that automatically, when you say Will Arnett uh, is doing the voice, you know, Will Arnett is is a comic actor. And so, oh yeah, y- you know, so that automatically like makes this into a comic character and, and, and makes the show basically into a comedy. Yeah. And uh, it brings those comedic, comedic elements in, in a way that's really effective and amusing and it would be really distracting. It's unbelievably difficult to pair, you know, one voice with another actor's physical presence, but man, they really worked on it well and they timed it out right. And it's relatively seamless the way that uh, the physical acting and the voice acting combine. And it just works and it makes Sweet Tooth such a, fun, compelling character that you just, you just don't want to stop seeing on screen. It's pretty great. All right. Well, Twisted Metal is airing on Peacock. I don't know if we'll give it our highest recommendation, but let's say it's a top, a BFG uh, top pick for August. Scott Gold has once again uh, submerged himself in the world of pop culture for us, and he's come out alive. You, you made your milk run. Yes, I have, and I have made it to the walled city of New New Orleans, which is very hot. All right. Thanks, Scott Gold. Twisted Metal is now airing on Peacock. And also thanks to Sharon Vane for talking to me about trends in school censorship that are coming up now that the school year has started again. Always depressing, but always important. And thanks to Chris Lambert for talking to me about the strange trend of people taking photos of movies while they're in movies. I recommend you taking a photo of yourself listening to this podcast. And then I don't know where you would send it, but send it to someone. Someone's going to care. I'm Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. I will talk to you next week. Original Production.